DKS2 is powered by Meme Global, a video marketing and advertising solution for entrepreneurs. Hello and welcome to the Digital Kung Fu Show, the podcast and video cast for startup founders and entrepreneurs. Even if you're alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs across the world hustling today's markets. At Digital Kung Fu, we have one goal, to help entrepreneurs succeed in their ventures through information sharing, digitally connecting them with other entrepreneurs, and by dissecting and deconstructing the world's leading business minds right here on this show. Remember, you can view the full show notes on our website at digitalkungfu.co. Dot ZA, or tweet this show using our handle at Digital Kung Fu ZA or follow us on Facebook.com slash Digital Kung Fu ZA. Spotting trends can often be a key leverage point for startup founders and entrepreneurs. Trends often define exactly where we position our play in a market. Picking the right trend to leverage for a startup is not an easy thing to do. And when one considers the pace of technology development today, often what we know today is obsolete tomorrow. So I thought I'd reach out to Arthur Goldstuck, one of South Africa's premier technologists and futurists. In this episode, we discuss numerous exponential technology trends. These are trends that are happening in the market right now. These are trends that are reshaping and defining the business landscape today, but also in the future. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Right, so welcome back to another wicked edition of the Digital Kung Fu Show. My name is Matt Brown, and in today's show, we are going to be discussing the major digital and technology trends that are impacting the world of business, and uh, but most importantly, I think, how they are in- infecting and affecting the world of startups and entrepreneurs. So our highly distinguished guest today is a South African journalist, media analyst, and commentator on information and communications technology, or ICT, uh, internet and mobile communications and technologies, uh, where he actually led uh, the early research into the size of the internet user population and the extent of web commerce in South Africa. Um, and this resulted in the establishment of uh, trend lines and benchmarks for internet growth in the country, as well as um, benchmarks for web strategy and website evaluation in South Africa. So our guest today goes way, way back to the embryonic stages of the internet in Sub-Saharan Africa, pretty much. Um, He is the current CEO of Worldwide Works, a research organization that has uh, led research into ICT issues like the impact on uh, of IT on small business and the role of mobile technologies in business and government and the technology challenges facing the financial sector, which we'll touch on a bit later. He has also represented South Africa as a judge for the interactive category of the Cannes International Advertising Festival in France and the online category of the London International Advertising Festival. He is also an author, among other works, of South Africa's best-selling IT book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Internet, as well as The Art of Business on the Internet, and has contributed to um, many numerous uh, publications, both local and international, including The Times of London and Billboard, and he is also the editor, some of you may know, of Gadget, the online consumer technology magazine. Rounding up then, our guest is a media heavyweight and market opinion maker in the technology and business space, which is why we're very lucky to have on the line today, Arthur Goldstuck. Arthur, thank you for your time today. I'm very excited to have you in the hot seat. Thank you, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be with you. Welcome, welcome. Right, so um, I think I'd like to kick off with mobile. So given the context of Africa and broadly the world, we know we're living in a mobile-first economy, whether it's developing or established. Um, But I wanted to start by sharing a stat that I came across quite a while ago now, and I'm sure it's actually compounded even more. But there are more people in (coughs) Africa with access to a mobile phone than clean drinking water. And with the rising billion, referring to, of course, the amount of – people who are going to connect to the mobile web for the first time in the next sort of two to five years. And obviously, when you also look at the increasing penetration of smart, smartphones, rather, I'd like to ask you, in your expert opinion, what kind of consumer needs will be realized from this? And how should entrepreneurs and startups position themselves to take advantage of these market trends? Well, that stat you mentioned, in fact, speaks volumes in a, a, a short sentence. The very fact that more people have cell phones than have access to running water or drinking water uh, tells you, firstly, 
that uh, there's been a massive failure in infrastructure in terms of people's uh, basic needs. Mm-hmm. But it also tells you that when people are able to take their needs and uh, their uh, resources into their own hands, they are able to get access to it. So running water is something that the individual can't really do by themselves, but getting a cell phone, they can. Mm. And then what it also tells us, the fact that um, so many people have cell phones, even when they don't have some of the other basic needs uh, met, is that communication is a basic need. Mm. And that's a fundamental learning from the use of uh, phones in South Africa and across Africa which is just how important communication is to the individual and therefore how empowering the cell phone is. And that empowerment means that uh, most individuals have this tool element is a massive transition from basic cell phones to smartphones. Mm -hmm. There will come a time in the next five years or so when you don't get such a thing as a feature phone. Mm -hmm. There will all be smartphones. And um, it's going to be cheaper to produce smartphones than feature phones Mm -hmm. eventually. So right now people are paying between 100 and 500 rand for a feature phone, mm-hmm. but uh, smartphones are now costing between the entry-level smartphones are costing between 400 and 800 rand. Mm-hmm. So those two are intersecting very powerfully, and it's at that intersection mm-hmm. that we are seeing this huge migration to uh, smartphones, mm-hmm. and that is a, a, a massive opportunity and a challenge to uh, the business world. So it's both businesses that serve customers in general, whether they are retailers or not, or or marketers or not, um, because people will be accessing information about those businesses and accessing people in those businesses through these uh, tools in their hands. Mm -hmm. And the other side of it, of course, is on the marketing side. Mm -hmm. One has to understand that marketing is now about speaking to hundreds of millions of people or trying to target hundreds of millions of people via a device they have in their hands rather than being focused, as in uh, previous times, on radio, TV, and to some extent, print media. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Arthur, for that. Um, let's talk about telecommunications. You mentioned that communications is a basic need, right? Um, and it's interesting because when you look at the telecommunications category, so we're referring to the likes of Vodafone, NTN, Salsi, Airtel, all these kind of big brands. When you look at that market, you know, disruptive competition like over-the-top services, What by that I mean WhatsApp, WeChat, and those um, sort of VoIP services and so forth are really eating the bottom line of telcos, right? So to put that in perspective, when we talk about the, the impact of disruptive products and services, WhatsApp hit 67 million monthly average users in two years. That was, that's, to put that in perspective, right, that's five and a half times bigger than Facebook and 17 times bigger than Twitter was in year two, which really illustrates the point of the impact of mobile that were coupled with disruptive products and services and the underlying business models. So telcos are, of course, just one example of this, right? But when you look um, further at the category, there's things like product and service commoditization. There's organizational inertia, the inability to adapt quickly to disruptive innovations and changing consumer needs like the rising billion and so forth. And I think this place is an even greater innovation uh, specifically on disruptive products and services. So I wanted to get your viewpoint on what is the most effective way for entrepreneurs to work with research data, which is something that you do day in and day out for, uh, you know, uh, to identify um, emerging consumer needs, okay, so that they can fill those needs with innovative products and services. The first thing I would say is to be very careful of hype and uh, misdirection. And uh, the OTT uh, story is a good example of that, where the the networks worldwide are railing against the OTT players, the WhatsApps and Facebooks, Mm. et cetera, Mm. claiming that they are having a free ride on these companies' uh, networks. Well, it's fundamentally a lie, and I'll say that uh, straight out because – um, I find it incredibly disingenuous that the networks are seeing massive increases in data use mm. and therefore in data revenue, thanks largely, almost entirely in some cases, to the OTT players. And now they're asking government to step in and block these guys mm. or uh, make them pay some kind of fee for using their networks. Yeah. They want to kill the goose that is laying their uh, golden, golden egg. Uh, egg. Yeah. 
it's it's quite it's quite idiotic, and I'll I'll, I'll go that uh, far, and probably some of these guys will never speak to me again uh, for for saying that. <laughs> I'll speak but to you. I just don't get it. <laughs> Every time they announce the um, interim results, the annual results, etc., you can see the impact being made by data yeah. on their bottom line. Yeah, yes, voice revenues are dropping. SMS, yeah. which is always a ripple, yeah. fifty to eighty cents for. 160 characters. What for? Was, oh, no. uh, insanity. It yeah. was one of the great rip-offs of, of telecommunications history. Mm-hmm. And uh, along comes instant messaging to kill off that uh, little uh, rip-off. And uh, they didn't respond immediately, but now they see the WhatsApps and Facebook messengers introducing voice, mm. and they want to stop that before it eats into their voice revenues. But meanwhile, they are celebrating the massive rise in um, data, data uh, revenues and data yeah. traffic. Mm. And what I can almost guarantee is that the average person going onto the data networks or buying data bundles is using it primarily so that they can use the likes of WhatsApp and Facebook mm-hmm. uh, on their phones. Mm-hmm. It's far and away the most common use of uh, data on their phones. So come on, networks, mm-hmm. catch a wake up or at least be honest with us mm-hmm. about uh, what's uh, really happening here. Mm-hmm. So. To answer your question, on the back of that little rant and rave, <laughs> which is one of my favorite rants and raves, <laughs> I say, um, is uh, that uh, to understand the consumer and understand what the consumer is doing in this context is to see the extent to which they are pursuing um, convenience and cost. Mm. So they want to control their costs. It's not that they necessarily want every, everything for free because there is a cost to all this, but they want to control um, that cost. And the networks have not been very helpful in uh, controlling costs. So yeah. help consumers to control costs mm. and you'll have them on your side to a far better extent rather than try to confuse them with, with uh, packages that are so untransparent that yeah. it's impossible to know what you're actually paying for, what you're getting. Mm. Let people know what they're getting mm. and what they're paying for what they're getting. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't just apply to the mobile operators. The banks are a good example of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And that's a lesson for startups uh, to learn mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of startups have a freemium model mm-hmm. where you get free access to their app or their uh, service mm-hmm. for the basic service. But the moment you want to do anything real with it, then you suddenly have to start uh, paying. Coughing up, yeah. So there isn't, there isn't the kind of in-between where you can make basic use of of, uh, of the service in a way that's useful to you mm. as opposed to just trialing out the service. Mm. Um, but when I say there isn't that in-between, in many cases there isn't <laughs> that in-between. Yeah. Some entrepreneurs uh, do get it. And then have a phased um, approach. Uh, don't try to go big bang and make people uh, pay your global uh, your, your global standards fee when they are in an economy that's under severe pressure mm. and where a dollar is actually a lot of money. Yeah, I agree. So, yes, that's one of the lessons to come mm. out of that. Yeah. You understand how much a dollar actually is in mm. emerging mm. markets. Yeah, exactly. Inconsequential amount in uh, New York, Local. for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I think, you know, it's, it's for me in the telco space and like you say, financial services, it's really around access and affordability. You've got to solve a need. You've got to provide, give them access and it's got to be affordable. And, and it's, for me, it's staggering when I look broadly at developed markets and the products and platforms and services that are out there and they try and enter um, a developing economy like South Africa and the business model is just completely in the next stratosphere. Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't apply here. Mm-hmm. And they haven't really given any thought to, um, to, to really thinking around the commercial, the underlying commercial model that will work in a developing economy. So it's a bit of a chicken before the egg sort of thing, you know? Um, but anyhow, yeah, let's, exactly. let's move on to disruptive technologies. Um, they're obviously incredibly relevant to entrepreneurs and startups today. Um, I think from primarily because of the ability for disruptive technologies to enable traction in a market and then to do that also at scale. Um, WhatsApp is a great example of that. So for, I'll put that in perspective. Global S- the global SMS system does around 20 billion messages a day. You mentioned uh, <laughs> the SMS um, sort of context there just now. Um, but to comparatively to that, WhatsApp is doing... 42 billion messages, right, a day, but only with 57 engineers. And that for me is incredible. So what, from your perspective, um, are the major disruptive technologies and trends that are going to shape 
or that are currently shaping the world of entrepreneurship and business today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. I'd like to preface that by saying we haven't seen disruption yet when uh, one considers what is around the corner and, and what is coming. So what I rather want to look at than look at what's right here, right now, is uh, what's on the horizon, what's about to uh, disrupt us in a very serious way. Okay. So uh, just to, to mention, the, the, the cell phone and then the smartphone has been massively disrupted mm-hmm. and the internet has been massively disrupted. So there are two or three um, technologies that have completely disrupted the world of communication and business, and then social media is the other, um, including instant uh, messaging. So from Facebook through to WhatsApp and WeChat and BBM, those have been hugely disruptive. So that's, that's the background, but that's just the beginning. What we are going to see is when big data is really leveraged properly, and we hear a lot about uh, big data. We hear about uh, banks and retailers using big data to predict customer behavior and all that, and yet uh, they still have no idea how to handle the customer, how to target the customer. So when they make big noises about uh, big uh, data, it's really just that, uh, big noise. Uh, What we're going to see in the future is that – Big data is going to solve problems big and small, and it's going to allow the, the customer also to leverage their own data to structure the kind of service they want and then enables businesses to provide that uh, service in the way the customer uh, wants it. So uh, to, to give you an example, um, I attended a, a presentation by uh, Paul Maritz, who was the CEO of uh, VMware, and he was once number three at Microsoft behind Bill Gates. Um, and Steve Barmer, and uh, he's a South African who uh, went to university in Scotland and made his way to uh, Microsoft in its early days um, and made his fortune there and has been uh, instrumental in quite a few major businesses since then, as I say, VMware and currently a company called uh, Pivotal. Mm -hmm. And in this presentation, he spoke about the role of big data and analytics, and he described the decision-making cycle in uh, businesses where in the past you would uh, produce a product and put it out in the market and then spend perhaps six months analyzing market uh, reaction to it, spend another six months analyzing um, the reaction that you've measured over that uh, time and then spend maybe six months redeveloping the product based on that feedback and analysis. Mm -hmm. So the product cycle would be 18 months long. Now, with uh, big data and massive computing power and analytical power, companies like Google and Facebook in particular and Amazon to some extent are taking that same cycle and crunching it down. And bear in mind, 18 months was the tradition or the traditional cycle in the old world. They brought it down to two hours. Wow. That is so disruptive Mm. and so um, game-changing, which is a cliche of are rarely used, but it really is game-changing. It has changed the game, and that's why the likes of uh, Google and Facebook and Amazon are so powerful because they're able to uh, reduce their decision-making cycle down to a couple of hours, mm. and the, that's the beginning of the disruption. The real disruption comes when they reduce that to two minutes. When someone <laughs> sits down in a meeting, hits a button, and says, let's try this, let's see the reaction, Let's watch it in real time. 
And, okay, so that's what happened. Okay, uh, what are we going to do about it? Shall we do this? Okay, let's do that. Tweak it, hit the button again, and send it out there. So mm-hmm. in real time, you uh, are doing that um, uh, exercise that previously previously took 18 months. Mm-hmm. That is serious disruption. Right. And uh, that's where companies that are still part of the old world and the old way of doing things, and I'm talking about large companies yes. uh, here, yeah. uh, are going to be swept away so fast uh, they won't know what hit them. We've already seen that to some extent, but as I said, that's the prelude to mm. what's uh, still uh, mm. coming. And it can be these companies as well. Mm. If a Microsoft doesn't respond um, with alacrity in the same way that uh, a Google or a Facebook can, they could also potentially be uh, swept away mm. by this uh, tide of change. Mm. So just because you're in that game doesn't mean that uh, you're winning uh, the game. Yes. So that, I think, changes a business, it changes the world. Mm. And startups will come along with that mindset already in place from the start. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the real-time decision-making, the real-time product tweaking is going to be part of their DNA, mm. not something that they have to bring into their corporate culture. And that's where uh, startups really have the potential mm. to completely uh, disrupt uh, okay. big businesses. Fantastic. Awesome. I'd like to echo what you've just said. Um, you mentioned game changing just now. Um, there was an article, well, in fact, to illustrate the kind of um, evolution of disruption, like you say, it's, you, we think we're being disrupted now, but actually the big disruption is actually on the horizon and it's coming. I think I heard something like 65% or something crazy like that of the job titles that are going to exist in the next 20 years haven't even been invented yet. Um, and, um, That's conservative. And that's conservative. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and to your point, if your rate of innovation internally is slower than the rate of change externally, your, your business is pretty much on a path to, <laughs> you know, no good place. Um, and, um, in 2011, to illustrate that evolution of disruption, um, game changing this clicked it for me. There was a game that was launched called Fold It. It was a mobile app and it was basically using the principles of gamification to solve an age old a research problem that scientists had faced in terms of AIDS and the construction of the AIDS molecule. And through gamification, they actually took something that hadn't been, that no one had been able to solve for years. They solved it in 10 days, simply through crowdsourcing and, and adding a gamification layer on it. And that was in 2011. So we can imagine, for example, in the health space, where, you know, what the disruptive opportunities are going to be. And uh, we'll pick up on, on what they might be um, a bit later, but I thought, I thought I'd share that uh, with our viewers. Cool. So That's um, a very good example of what's, what's already happened, um, showing you what's potentially about to happen. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of what's about to happen, we're going to see markets expand and grow, right? Um, Internet of Things being one example, 3D printing potentially another, nanotechnology might be another. And there's a saying that, um, you know, a rising tide raises all boats. Um, so that's, I think that's an interesting segue into our next question for you, which is, um, in your research, have you identified any markets, maybe there's three or one or two, that in your view are growing rapidly or predicted to grow massively in the future? Well, the one that I've been focusing a lot on, or the, the sector that I've been focusing a, a lot on, and that I think is where we're going to see uh, the biggest impact on society at large. Uh, so not, not necessarily the one that's growing um, as much as the one that will have uh, the biggest impact is the automotive uh, sector. Mm. I've been following it quite closely for the last couple of years, okay. and this year in particular, we are seeing dramatic shifts. So at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, uh, for example, uh, for the first time ever, Ford um, launched a vehicle at a consumer technology show rather than at a car show. That is the Ford Cougar SUV. Okay. Um, and they also um, uh, unveiled a new version of the the um, connected car system, mm-hmm. uh, SYNC 3 it's called. Mm-hmm. But more important than that was a keynote by Mark Fields, the CEO, in which he declared that Ford would now be a mobile company and not a car company, or at least a car and mobile company. Right. But the idea of it right. being an, only an automotive company, that belongs to, uh, to history. And uh, one of the key trends that um, he uh, discussed and explained and showed Ford's role uh, in was uh, the 
car sharing future where people won't be owning their own cars mm. but will call a car as uh, they need it. And we're not talking about Uber yet. We're talking about a future of autonomous vehicles where you book a car and it comes to you without a driver and you get into it. So that's still a decade in the future. But between now and then, there's going to be a dramatic shift in vehicle uh, technology, in car sharing trends, etc. Uber themselves understand that as much as they've disrupted the taxi industry, they could be disrupted by this trend themselves. So they too are uh, exploring the potential of um, self-driving cars. Mm. And they expect to have their own fleet of self-driving cars in the future, which of course changes their model as well because their model is that they don't own um, assets aside from their office uh, buildings. So Uber is about to be disrupted dramatically by this. So the best thing they can do is to disrupt themselves. Mm. But um, what's uh, going to happen in the in the meantime is that more and more standard production vehicles will have uh, connectivity technology built into them, and increasingly they'll have autonomous features built mm. in. So right now you can get high-end vehicles that will park themselves. Yes. So you don't have to learn to park anymore if you drive uh, one of those. Um <laughs> And uh, in fact, already more than a year ago, um, I think it was uh, BMW showed off a car that um, you arrive at a shopping center car park um, and you can't see parking anywhere. You then put the car into self-parking mode and you go shopping and it goes looking for a parking spot (laughs) and parks itself. Awesome. And then when you're done shopping on your smartphone, you call it and it um, comes to meet you at the uh, entrance. Convenient. Um, with your shop, for example. <laughs> we need that. So, we need more that, of that. <laughs> Especially, <absolutely>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would help a lot. Yeah. So that's, that, theoretically, that's possible. And, um, it's been shown, um, in prototype to work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, so, so in, in this case, it's not a self-driving car on the roads, but once you get to the area where you need to park the car. It takes over. So that's a small step from what you already have in production vehicles Mm. of cars that where you get to your parking spot and it parks itself. So now push back step by step from that point. So first you have cars uh, available now that can park themselves. Then you have cars that at the parking lot will look for parking and then park itself. The next step is obviously for that car to be on the roads. Now, there's a lot of regulatory hurdles to be crossed there. The whole concept of uh, car licenses is going to have to change. Driver's licenses will have to change. So there's a massive ecosystem change uh, coming as well. And if you consider that in South Africa, there are more than 11 million cars on the road. I was staggered by that number. Mm, It was announced recently by uh, the Minister of Transport in giving the latest accident Mm. statistics. So 11 million cars on the road. We have more than 30 people killed on the roads every day. And most of that is either through poor maintenance or through bad driving. uh, driving. Um, 702 uh, has taken up a policy where they don't talk about accidents anymore. They say these aren't accidents because there's human error involved. And that's (laughs) no accident. So they call them crashes. But let's be charitable and call them accidents. The accident... (laughs) are usually the result of uh, human beings. So yeah. I far more trust a machine to make the decisions than uh, human beings. Yeah. That will reduce the accident rate dramatically. Mm-hmm. But guess what happens when the accident rate uh, reduces dramatically? The whole insurance model changes. Yeah. So the insurance industry is going to be utterly disrupted by uh, this trend. And uh, it's going to have to reinvent itself mm-hmm. as well. In this country, we have very innovative insurance companies, so I have no doubt they'll adapt very fast to yeah. this new world. Mm-hmm. But the huge fortunes that have been made from insurance, those are uh, probably going to vanish mm-hmm. and new models are going to have to emerge. Mm-hmm. Even the, the uh, supply chain for vehicle parts and the like is going to change. If you have uh, cars, fewer cars in accidents, then you have um, less demand for spare parts. You have less demand for panel beaters, mm. less demand for tow trucks, mm. etc. So you can see how many industries are disrupted mm. by this uh, one thing called um, a motor vehicle. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the area where I see uh, the big, the biggest uh, changes are coming. Mm. Uh, another area is in 
financial services payments and payment instruments and uh, the use of cash in uh, particular. Firstly, credit cards are evolving. I'm busy working on a column right now about a company called uh, Cylon, C-Y-L-O-N, that um, has come up with a credit card with um, 200 components embedded in this card that allows it to interact with an ATM. So it's a standard credit card size, fits into an ATM, mm-hmm. but can interact. It um, has a very tiny power supply, so it means that it can uh, store and send or share information um, to, via the ATM. Mm-hmm. Um, it also becomes a, um, a, a touch uh, payment card. In other words, it doesn't have to swipe to make payments through a machine, etc. So that's on the credit card side of things. And, of course, not everyone has a credit card. I think the number is less than 10 million in South Africa. But when you add debit cards, it's well over 10 million debit card holders. So half the population in South Africa could have a card with that kind of functionality uh, in it. And then you look at mobile payments, which no one is cracked in this country. But in Kenya, M-Pesa is um, a byword for financial inclusion. The reality there was that they didn't have a financial System. system for the masses. Yeah. People didn't have access to financial instruments, and M-Pesa suddenly gave them that. So that transformed the Kenyan economy. In this country, we have a very well-developed um, financial services infrastructure and massive access to services. So we have money transfer to retail assets, very well established, and that's why M-Pesa failed in this country. Yeah. Um, they also didn't take advice. We came up with uh, more than a dozen reasons why M-Pesa seeded in Kenya, uh, but reasons that were factors that weren't present, present in South Africa. Yeah. But when we try to make that point, um, the uh, guys refused to listen to us. Mm. So um, it's been no surprise to, to Worldwide Works that uh, mobile money, certainly M-Pesa, hasn't worked in uh, South Africa. Mm. But the reality is it can work if it takes into account the factors on the ground and the uh, factors that would be different in this market and the dynamics of this market. Mm. So you combine that with the kind of credit card functionality that is uh, now emerging and also uh, banking infrastructure changing fast and real-time banking becoming more and more possible. Right now there's still a delay when you transfer money from one bank to another. It only features the following day in most cases. Mm. But that's a fiction created by the bank system to protect themselves, to some extent to protect the customer from fraudulent activity. But there are ways around fraudulent activity. There are ways to, uh, to, 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 to verify that. And the delays that we're seeing at the moment is um, a technical delay. There's no one actually scrutinizing your transactions before approving it uh, the following day. Um, that, that could be done away with. And you could see real-time um, financial services across the board using all these technologies and services and then also making it cheaper for retailers to participate in that. Because right now it's expensive for retailers, especially if they have a narrow margins. And yeah, I'm talking about the small retailers in particular. But in narrow margins, they can't really afford the 25 to 5.5% credit card fee, for example, that the banks take from them. By streamlining everything, by speeding it all up, you also reduce the cost of the infrastructure, or at least for the processing of the transactions, and you can pass on some of that savings. So I see massive change and improvement coming there as well. Mm. Okay, awesome. Um, well, I want to pick up on a couple of things you said, and I think I, th- I was going to ask you about, you know, how do your startups and entrepreneurs really hunt out the next big thing? But I think um, you answered that by illustrating you have to think continuously through the value chain. So, you know, if autonomous cars happen, how does it affect insurance? If insurance changes, then how does it affect or less accidents? Then how does it, you know, how does it affect, you know, all the other elements that make up the value chain? And it's really around thinking about the ecosystem of disruption and, and looking at where the disruptive opportunities are going to be, um, in the next five, two, five, 10 years or whatever the case might be. The financial services opportunities that you mentioned is also interesting. I think like in PESA in Kenya, there's EVC plus in Somalia, which is pretty much doing the same thing that Impesa did in Kenya. Um, and uh, also when you look at the, um, the amount of venture capital being um, invested into startups today, over half of all startups funded in Africa do have a financial services play. Um, and you mentioned the, um, the kind of technology challenges that are facing that industry at the moment. 
um, and the opportunities there for entrepreneurs. But I think all of this really kind of leads into this, this context of technology adoption, right? Um, and I don't think technology adoption is something that many entrepreneurs or startups really look to understand, uh, you know, broadly and, and even from a, um, a lesser degree, a deep perspective. Um, so I'd like to unpack that with you at the moment. There was a piece of research that you, <clears throat> that you released where you stated that if you give someone a smartphone, let's call him Sapiwe or Tabo in Soweto today, that on average, it will take that same guy um, five years to adopt the technology to a point where they actually transact online. So, so this for me puts entrepreneurs with an e-commerce play in a bit of a predicament because it's a, a chicken and egg scenario. Namely that without technology adoption in play, the addressable market size is inherently compacted or reduced. So is there a way for entrepreneurs to speed up the technology adoption curve, as I call it, in developing economies like South Africa and more broadly Africa, for example? The real issue here isn't the technology adoption as such, but confidence in the ecosystem. Mm. So what we keep stressing is that the device you have or the speed at which it operates is not uh, the issue. The real issue is your experience of the ecosystem. And the more bottlenecks you have, the more frustrations you have, the less trust you have in that ecosystem. And the less confidence you have that if you, for example, buy something via your web browser or via your cell phone, that it will actually be uh, delivered. And um, the advent of the smartphone has potentially ex extended that um, uh, curve. So people kept asking us over the years, because we first came up with this more than 10 years ago, People kept asking us, so will um, f uh, faster broadband speed up the curve? Will smartphone adoption speed up the curve? And the conclusion I'm coming to is that, in fact, smartphone adoption is extending that curve. Because on that small mm -hmm. screen, even if you have a five-and-a-half-inch uh, tablet, it's still a tiny screen where you have very little information and very little context for what you're expected to do. And that makes you nervous. So potentially it's going to take even longer for people to build up the confidence to transact. Um, and it also depends a lot on age. So older people, even if they adopt smartphone technology, are unlikely to embrace online shopping. Mm. I spoke to a guy yesterday who's a seasoned uh, journalist who's been online since the late 1990s, and he still has never made an online purchase because he doesn't trust <laughs> that environment. And that's because he's particularly cynical, which is also something that goes with um, being uh, older in some cases. Mm. Uh, the, the younger market that is coming on board doesn't have the disposable income or the financial instruments with which to transact. So you've got to wait for them to get into the job market and uh, get a, a credit card perhaps at this stage or to um, adopt an e-wallet type solution mm. in which they can put their disposable income when they have disposable income. Yeah. So you've got those two um, bookends, you could say, to this uh, digital participation mm. occur. And in between, you have people with this uh, tiny screen that have got to make a financial um, a <laughs> transaction decision. Mm -hmm. So it's not speeding up. And that's something that has to be understood. The addressable market for people wanting to sell digitally mm. um, is a lot smaller than the um, user base of people on the internet or using smartphones. Yeah, great point, great point. Um, let's shift gears and talk about the internet of things, right? So <clears throat> it's predicted uh, by many that there will be some ridiculous number, like 50 billion connected devices to the internet in the next sort of four years, and that the internet of things industry collectively will be a staggering $7 trillion. Um, so obviously, you know, the, the, the drivers of that market primarily are the falling cost of sensors, um, increasing internet penetration, more robust network connectivity, and so forth. But with your entrepreneur's hat on, if you were to pick, say, three industries that represent the biggest opportunities for startups with an internet of things play, what would they be? Well, one of the big, big growth areas which uh, is being leveraged at the moment by medical insurance companies is activity monitoring. Mm. So the likes of the Fitbit, um, for, for example. But I think there's a lot of opportunity there for people to leverage that kind of information 
and that kind of activity tracking in other directions. So, for example, productivity. I think we have only seen a tip of the iceberg of productivity management and uh, time management. I, I remember the revolution that was called the Filofax. I don't know if you remember the Filofax. <laughs> I actually had one. Oh, no. <laughs> don't say the F word. <laughs> <laughs> a fat diary was kind of a it, it was essentially a glorified to-do list. Yeah. Um, but uh, that that was a, a groundbreaking productivity tool. And yet... Um, once it went to a digital, and I remember the early digital follow taxes, I think uh, Lotus had a great Lotus example. Lotus yeah. were the guys who uh, really um, invented the, 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 the modern spreadsheet. Mm. They were the predecessor to Excel with Lotus 1, 2, 3. Mm. And they came up with a digital file fax that I really thought would change my life. And it didn't. <laughs> and I think part of the problem is that it requires you to input so much bloody information as, uh, as a person knowing what you're doing. So I think that's a huge opportunity for uh, for startups uh, to 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 leverage taking the concept of activity monitoring into uh, productivity. Um, that's one area I would uh, certainly uh, be looking at. Uh, another is this whole payments environment. Taking that as a context and seeing where you can plug the gaps and and fill holes, I think that's a big opportunity. And then um, in the world of apps, uh, one of my personal ambitions, which I've kind of abandoned, was to act as a kind of navigator through this complex world of apps. The reason that I dropped it was because most people default to four or five apps that they use all the time, and the rest they have to go looking for on their own yeah. smartphone a year after uh, downloading and signing up because they've forgotten it's there, and then they suddenly have um, a need for it. Yeah. So. Between those two extremes, I do think there's uh, there's an opportunity to come up with more must-use apps as opposed to must-download um, apps. And um, I think that um, it's not so much filling a gap in the market as filling a gap in people's um, behavior with their smartphones. The, the, the area to look at in terms of smartphones is where the functionality is heading at the moment. So there, there are quite a few big trends in functionality. One is far more vivid screens that can display things far more uh, brightly and clearly and sharply, mm. so high definition in particular. But the difficulty people are now having is um, marrying that to bigger display uh, devices like a smart TV or even a basic TV. So being able to watch a video on your smartphone is one thing. It's not a very satisfying experience despite the dazzling resolution you're now getting. Mm. So getting that onto your uh, TV screen, there's a lot of uh, apps for it. There's a lot of tools and devices and connections and so on, but they're all clunky. None of them work seamlessly. None of them uh, are really geared towards the person who doesn't know how technology works. You've got to know a thing or two to make them work. So that's frustrating. So solve people's frustrations on that level and then look at uh, camera technology, for example, advancing rapidly on uh, smartphones. The, the quality you're now getting is just amazing on, on uh, some phones. And um, take advantage of that in some way or another. Um, there's an app um, that I've uh, just downloaded called um, Many Things, one word, which allows you to take your old smartphone and use it as a, a security camera or um, a, a camera monitor linked to your newer phone. And oh. that's an innovative use of the camera technology on the phones and the connectivity between the devices. But that's just one example of thinking a little uh, more laterally about what you can do uh, with the camera technology on phones. I think there's a lot more opportunities um, in that regard, from security to authentication uh, to uh, monitoring to um, sharing. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's one of the sort of uh, app um, categories that I think will explode as all smartphones evolve in in this direction, um, and then the ability of of, um, of, of smartphones to operate um, more speedily, to have more capacity, to interact with the cloud. All of those areas, I believe, are, are going to come together to make a lot more possible. And people just have to explore and think about uh, what's possible rather than what gaps haven't been filled because it's not about the gaps. It's about the possibilities. Mm-hmm.
Brilliant. Love that. Um, so one last question on technologies, and then we're going to kind of round up and, and finish off. Um, and that question I want to I want to address is lots of talk. I read a great book recently about exponential technologies like 3D printing, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, nanobots, and all these kind of things. What's your take on exponential technologies and their likelihood of shaping the business world in the future? Well, I do, I do uh, think the example that we used uh, earlier about uh, big data is potentially going to transform the world if the data is used properly. Mm. Uh, you need uh, uh, big data for uh, big, broad, uh, broad brush insights, but also for little insights. Mm. There'll be a lot of tiny insights that you'll be able to glean. So you'll need people who are able to read the big data or read the insights in a way that results in usable conclusions or usable advice. It's one thing to have all this data mm. and uh, all these insights. It's another thing applying them to, mm. uh, to business problems. So I think business problem solving is uh, going to be a massive asset in the future. Mm. So um, the educational system right now is still geared towards, and it's become a cliche, it's still geared towards 20th century needs and, in fact, the 19th century industrial yeah. uh, system. So the, the classroom as we have it now was actually designed to serve uh, the uh, uh, worker needs yeah. of the 19th century industrial mm -hmm. um, uh, environment. Uh, we in the 21st century where we're talking about, uh, as you said, two-thirds of current jobs will, or job descriptions will no longer exist. So we've got to prepare people for being flexible, innovative, problem-solving, and creative. Mm. So – um, that will allow people to leverage whatever exponential uh, growth one sees or exponential increase in technology capabilities, etc. So it doesn't become any more about tying yourself into a technology, but rather uh, marrying yourself to the idea of being flexible and going with whatever's out there and addressing it in a creative, collaborative, and problem-solving manner. Those are the three key needs of 21st century education and the 21st century working environment. We're not seeing it happen yet. We're not even seeing our educational system begin to address uh, those uh, particular needs. Mm -hmm. So if we do see this exponential growth, we're certainly not um, ready for it. Um, and then just in terms of, of the kind of tech that's already emerging now that's going to see exponential growth, in the near future, I believe that um, augmented reality is going to play a massive role in the future. We all focus heavily on virtual reality. All the investment is going into virtual reality. Okay, lovely. Thank, thanks for that, Arthur. Cool. So last two questions for you. Um, so having covered everything that we've covered so far, um, I thought I'd sort of pitch you uh, with, a, with a kind of a, a question that kind of really would kind of focus where you would take a business today. So if I gave you a million dollars right now and asked you to start a business and assuming you said yes, I'm, I'm all up for it, <laughs> uh, what kind of business would you start and why? I'd probably start an identity uh, business because I think that's the fault line in uh, the whole online environment. And we are seeing a lot of solutions for authentication and the like. But when you consider that uh, Facebook, for example, is the world's um, most common means of authentication of identity uh, online, then you need to be a bit worried because um, creating a Facebook identity is not uh, very difficult. Creating a convincing Facebook identity is a lot more uh, difficult, but uh, if you're clever about it, you can even do that. And then you use that as your means of authentication for the rest of the online world. That's a little dodgy, I'd say. So that's one of the areas that I would explore. But then I would also say $1 million is not enough to start a truly disruptive uh, business because to be very disruptive, you've got to get out there and you've got to spend a lot of money on marketing. Yeah. So a big chunk of that goes into the development of the concept, the idea, um, et cetera. Uh -huh. But um, the, the the marketing needs in order to have come to the attention of the world are going to be uh, massive. Yeah. So what I would actually do with the, the million dollars is develop a proof of concept. Yes. And there's numerous ideas. I could, just to put it, put it in context, I get an average of one person a week coming to see me with uh, an idea mm -hmm. where they want to know what I uh, think of it. If it's only an idea, then usually the meeting doesn't last too long because <laughs> you actually need them to have 
um, created concept. something. Yeah, no, exactly. We all, we all know that ideas uh, are worth nothing because yeah. anyone can come up with a dozen ideas. Someone said to me a while ago on WhatsApp, they said, um, uh, what, what, do, what uh, do you think I should do um, for uh, a new app, someone who developed quite a good app? He said, um, what ideas do you have for a new app for me? And I rattled off um, half a dozen ideas. That's how easy it was. Yeah, yeah. Just because I rattled off half a dozen ideas didn't mean that um, that any of those ideas had real um, potential. One needs to explore them. So you need to explore to the extent where you actually create a prototype mm. that you can put on the table and then spend a bit of money making a prototype look decent mm. and look like something that you can actually take to um, investors. And perhaps put it out there in a trial form where you uh, try to see what the initial uptake is mm. and what the initial feedback is. Mm. That feedback is critical because people think they have all the solutions and they go to market with it and they get slated because mm. they didn't take into account some obvious gaps um, in, in the offering. And those gaps would have been addressed if they had trialed the product mm. um, at least. So that million dollars would go towards all of that stuff, and obviously hiring good people as well, mm. because what an investor looks for, um, first and foremost, once they've looked at the concept, is the team that you have on board. And to have a good team on board can be expensive, unless you've got people um, who are, are working on what they call sweat equity, mm. where they get a share of, of business. But people still have to make a living, mm. so you have to pay them a salary yeah. if you expect them to devote all their time to this concept. So most of that million dollars would probably go to uh, developing the app or the concept and uh, hiring a good team to start with. Mm-hmm. But um, it's, let's say it's a million dollars in South Africa, 14 million rand, and you hire, let's say, um, a dozen heavy uh, people, mm-hmm. um, that 14 million rand it's going to burn up pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned um, identity um, sort of management uh, or identity network or, and so on because I'm actually interviewing Vinnie Lingham uh, next week and that's his whole play with Civic is to combat identity fraud effectively and come up with a new way of effectively authentic- yeah, authenticating Yeah, Vinnie has a good solution there but it's only one solution. Yeah. There are many opportunities for solutions in this space. Well, Arthur, thank you so much for um, your time today. I think we've covered a hell of a lot of ground. I think there's a real um, fertile sort of bedrock now in place for anyone looking to kind of establish a startup um, and pursue their entrepreneurial dream. So thank you very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed uh, discussing, um, you know, uh, trends and innovations and so forth. I will, uh, and uh, what I'll do is I'll post your, your contact details below, uh, below this, this video. Okay, Paul, thank you so much for your, for your time today, and I will wish you all the best for the rest of the year. Remember that the show is now on iTunes, so please head on over and either write us a review or subscribe for new episodes. And if you'd like to be an exclusive real-time participant on our next Digital Kung Fu live show, then visit our website at digitalkungfu.co.za forward slash live to get early bird VIP access. Thanks for listening to the Digital Kung Fu Show. If you'd like to check out more episodes and get access to our growing community of entrepreneurs working together to succeed in business, then please visit our website at www.digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.